0: from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to emmanuelbirmingham.com. Our text this morning comes from 1 Peter 4 verses 12 through 19 it says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hey, well, good morning, uh, church. It's good to see you this morning. Great for you here. Um, I am going to go ahead and pray for us again <laughs> because I feel like my voice is going away. I need the Spirit to give me vocal cords now. So let me pray for us that he gives us insight into his word this morning. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Father, for your great mercy, <clears throat> your great mercy that is uh, lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. I love that word lavished because it is poured out abundantly, more than we could ever need. I pray now, Lord, as we seek to find comfort and hope and guidance from your word, that you lead us by the spirit. I pray, oh God, that you open up our eyes to see the truth of the gospel. That You convict us when we need to be convicted, that you encourage us when we need to be encouraged, that you remind us that Christ is sufficient in all things for everything that we need, even in the midst of great suffering we may find ourselves in. Father, I thank you for Christ. We pray these things in his name, amen. history is uh, filled with countless stories of men and women standing firm in the midst of harsh persecution, harsh trials. From the stoning of Stephen and Acts chapter 7, literally up to this very moment, somewhere in the world, Christians are suffering and dying, clinging to the hope of the gospel until their very last breath upon this earth. You know, we could literally spend the remainder of our time this morning just telling these stories, or books and accounts filled with these testimonies of men and women who have endured to the end. You know, I could tell you the story. Uh, I'll tell you briefly. Really, the story of Perpetua. Maybe you know that name Perpetua. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago in a sermon. She's um, from the third century. Against the wishes of her family, she became a Christian, was baptized, and then shortly thereafter, she was sent to prison in Carthage, which is modern-day Tunis or Tunisia. During her stay in prison, she kept a journal of her account for stay in this prison in Carthage, and she describes the physical and emotional torment that she was under in this prison. You know, oftentimes her father would come to her and plead with her to recant her faith and come back home. Her father was obviously not a believer, but she refused. She refused continued, her father continued to come and beg her to recant her faith, even going as far to bring her newborn infant son to her and say, you need to come home to your family, to be with your baby, to be with us, recant your faith, and she again refused. The governor of that region called Perpetua before him to give uh, her the chance to recant, a final opportunity to recant her faith by sacrificing to the emperor, which was Common in those days to see the emperor as a god and to sacrifice to him. Again, while he, she is being questioned, her father burst into the room, holding again her baby, pleading with her, saying, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your baby. She refused again to recant her faith. She was condemned to die <clears throat> in the arena, at the hands of gladiators and wild animals, I've actually been to that arena that she died in. It was very, uh, very moving. We could go on and on with stories about John Bunyan or John Chavis or Charles Simeon or Tin Boom or Wang Ming Dao. I mean, countless men and women that we know, and even more whom we've never heard their names. Who, when faced with fiery trials, to use the language here in First Peter chapter four. Held true to their faith in Christ and like Christ, endured suffering for the glory that was set before them. You know, most of us will never know suffering in these ways. You know, most of us in this room will never face the choice between suffering and death for Christ or denying him and continuing on in our faith or in in our lives in this world. But we can rejoice in their faith, and we can ask the Lord to sustain us during other fiery trials that may come our way in this life. In our text for this morning, once again, uh, Peter speaks to the response of the Christian in unjust suffering. And I was talking to uh, Joy before the service. She's like, I'm having a hard time finding pictures for kids to color during sermons in 1 Peter because it's all about suffering. I was just find some people burning at the stake and, you know, we'll, we'll color them. Um, Because it's repetitive. You know, Peter keeps bringing it up. How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to suffering in the life of a believer in our lives? And how are we to react and respond when we face hardship and ridicule and malignment and persecution for our faith in Christ? You know, if you've been with us at all through this journey in 1 Peter, we've already seen him address this idea of wrongly, wrong, uh, being accused wrongly and, being, and suffering as a result of being falsely accused. You know, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 address these things. You know, even our text for last week, if you are with us last week, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, talks about being maligned, pushed aside for not partaking in the activities of the culture around us. You know, if it bears repeating often throughout the course of this five-chapter book, Peter must really want us to drill down in our minds and our hearts these truths surrounding suffering unjustly in this world. You know, we may not face the type of persecution many of these saints of old and current day face, but the truths they clung to and believed are truths we must cling to and believe in our midst, in our own trials and grief and pain. And at the heart of Peter's teaching on enduring and suffering in this world as a Christ follower is this truth, that God is trustworthy in pleasure and in pain. That God is trustworthy in pleasure and in pain. As Christ followers, God is worthy of our trust regardless of if we're on the mountain or in the valley. He's proven himself time and time again to be faithful not only to us, but faithful to men and women throughout the course of history and time. I mean, one of the reasons Christian biographies are written, and one of the reasons we could recount them today, that might be beneficial for us, is to see how God is faithful and to see that Christ is the treasure in the field worth forsaking all things in this world to obtain. In our text this morning, Peter gives us It gives us eight responses, eight responses when we find ourselves in the midst of fiery trials, eight things. And as we're going to see, much of the language and the themes Peter's imploring here in these seven verses for this morning are themes he's already visited, really in chapter one, that he's now beginning to expound in even more detail here in chapter four. But I believe these eight things, these eight responses will help us when we find ourselves in the throes of normal, everyday suffering, even if we're not suffering in the fiery trial of persecution, there are fiery trials we face all the time that demand for us to cling to our faith and believe the word of Christ in the midst of this broken world. I mean, how many times when we find ourselves in suffering in this world, do the questions just begin to pop into our minds? And the questions like, have I done something wrong? to displease or anger God. Why is this happening to me? Has the Lord left me to fend for myself in this situation? I don't feel Him near me right now. Am I all alone? These are the questions that our hearts just tend to naturally gravitate towards when we find ourselves in the midst of trial and suffering. But Peter wants us to see trials in a different way. He wants to encourage us and remind us of who God is in the midst of our trials. That although the situations in our lives may change, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he does not change. And the trials which have come upon us are not by accident, but they are allowed and ordained by God to accomplish his will in our lives and in his church. So eight responses here in these seven verses to trials. Eight responses. First, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Verse 12, read it with me again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. A suffering for the Christian should come as no surprise. You know, the one we follow and claim to be the foundation and source of our salvation suffered at the hands of evil men to test his faithfulness to his father. And he said things like, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. Jesus told us that following him would be costly, that it would involve suffering. And for believers, this suffering is to test us and to purify us. You know, suffering uh, is counter to our modern sensibilities in this world, is it not? I mean, just think about all the ways we seek to eliminate suffering in our lives. We eat right, we exercise, we have routine physicals and checkups to avoid potential physical suffering later on in life. We purchase insurance for literally everything, in home, car, disability, life. I mean, on and on we could go to avoid potential financial strain and suffering if something bad comes upon us. When our jobs get difficult or stressful, oftentimes we seek new employment to alleviate the strain and the suffering and the hardship in that moment. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are bad, necessarily. I mean, I've partaken many of those things. My point is simply to show you that suffering in this world, particularly suffering in the Western world that we find ourselves in, is seen as abnormal and to be eliminated, if at all possible. That suffering must be remedied so that we can get back to normal life. And in a sense, this desire for normalcy removed from suffering is from God. I mean, think about this for just a second. Why do you think human beings see suffering as abnormal and living life removed from suffering as normal? I mean, why why do we feel that way? I mean, if we were to take an honest assessment of reality, suffering is probably one of the most universal, normal experiences in our entire lives, right? Everybody in this world and everybody who's ever lived in this world, post-Genesis 3, has experienced suffering. So it is almost the most normal thing about life, right? And yet, we see it as abnormal, as something to be fixed. And I would argue that the reason we see it as abnormal, even people that are not Christ followers see it as abnormal, is because God has planted pre-Eden eternity in all of our hearts. That suffering and death were not a part of the original created order. And at one point in time, they truly were abnormal. I mean, not a part of the reality of human existence held any part of suffering and death. And I would argue that God as our creator has put into every human heart a sense that my physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological pain is not normal. That it's abnormal. It is not intended to be this way. And we know it's not normal because it's the consequence of sin being in this world. Sin that was once at one time not in this world and sin that will one day be eradicated from this world. So in that way, yes, suffering is abnormal. But now, in this broken post-fall world we find ourselves in, suffering is somewhat normal. I mean, particularly as Peter's discussing here, suffering in the name of Christ is normal. It's to be expected. And Peter's exhortation here is not to be surprised when it comes upon us as Christians. For if our Savior suffered unjustly to test his faith, so we too can expect to suffer as he did to test ours. Do we truly believe the gospel we proclaim is sufficient for us in suffering? So that's the first response. Second, We rejoice in our union with Christ. We rejoice in our union with Christ. Verse 13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now Peter's not saying we should enjoy suffering. We don't find joy and rejoice in the suffering itself. That's not what the text says. It says, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. In the suffering, in suffering for the sake of Christ, our rejoicing comes from the fact that we are sharing Christ's sufferings. That somehow we are participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now one day we're going to devote an entire sermon or maybe sermons plural to discussing this whole idea of our union with Christ. All right? I think I think this whole notion of being united to Christ and all that encompasses is something that's not talked about a lot today and it is life-changing if you really grasp it. But as I said before, as Christ goes, so goes the church. Let me think about the metaphor the church is the body of Christ. In Christ Jesus, the head of the body, us, the body of the body, right? The other parts of the body. And just like our heads and bodies physically are united together, right? To the point we lose our heads, we lose our bodies, right? I mean, if we get a significant head injury, there is a 100% chance that our bodies will be affected. So whatever the head experiences, the body experiences, right? So if Christ is the head of the body, all that he experienced and achieved as the head will be experienced and achieved by the body. And Peter says two things will experience, be experienced by the body in this verse. Two things. One, the sufferings of Christ as I just said, when we suffer for the sake of Christ, our source of rejoicing is that we are participating in his sufferings, that he is suffering with us. I mean, Acts chapter nine, verse four. Think of Acts chapter nine. Saul is on his way, Saul pre-Paul. Saul is on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, right? Jesus shows up, blinds Saul, voice calls out from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me. I mean, is Saul persecuting Christ literally? No. Christ has died, risen, and ascended to the Father. And yet Jesus Christ identifies as much with his people that he says, why are you persecuting me? And when you persecute my people, you persecute me. They share in my sufferings. The suffering the church experiences is also experienced by the head in some way. But also, not only does Peter here write about participating in the sufferings of Christ as a source of joy, but implicitly in this verse, as we participate in his sufferings, so too will we participate in his glory. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 6, 3 and 4. He says, we're buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Then in verse five, Paul writes, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We rejoice in sufferings for the sake of Christ because we know that after the cross comes the crown. Why do we know that? Because it came for Christ. That's how we know that. After suffering comes resurrection because as goes the head, So goes the body. we got to move faster. We're never going to finish this thing. All right, three, three, number three. We should be assured of God's presence. We should be assured of God's presence. Third response in fiery trials. Verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There are three places in all the Bible, three places in all the Bible, that talk about the Spirit of God resting on someone. Isaiah eleven two, which we're actually gonna preach about in our Advent sermon series, but Isaiah eleven two is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. The Holy Spirit will rest upon him. Matthew three sixteen, when Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water, you see the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting upon him. And then here, where the Spirit of God is said to rest on believers when they're insulted for the name of Christ. Another way we're united to Christ, right? Another way. As he received the Holy Spirit to endure fiery trials, so in him we too receive the Spirit to endure in our trials. And this is part of our hope in the midst of trials, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit not only transforms us through our trials, which he does, but the Spirit comes to rest on us The spirit of power, of God, of glory becomes intimately acquainted with us. You know, one of the common themes you're going to, going back to Christian biographies, you're going to read in Christian biographies, particularly biographies of believers who endured much suffering, is that they never felt as close to the presence of God. This is exactly what Peter's talking about. That in fiery trials, a part of the blessing that causes rejoicing is the felt nearness of God through the Holy Spirit. If you find yourself right now in the midst of some fiery trial, particularly fiery trials due to unjust suffering, take heart, for the Lord is near you. He's near you. The Spirit of God has rested upon you. He's near you. Fourth response. We must assess the cause of our trials. We must assess the cause of our trials. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. (laughs) I find that funny. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, where it's like murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler. Um, You know, it's like such a great, you know, from start to finish, just such a great chasm of difference. But... Peter's telling us to take stock in why we're actually suffering. You know, there's no glory to be had in suffering for your own sins. We must assess and take stock of why we are suffering. Are we suffering for being believers in Christ? Or are we suffering for just being jerks? You know, for being annoying with our coworkers, trying to force our beliefs down somebody's throat when they don't want to hear it. We're just on them all the time. Assess the cause of our trials. Fifth, fifth response to fiery trials. Continue to glorify God in your boldness. Continue to glorify God in your boldness. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This is the third time in the scriptures the term Christian is used. Third time. The church is called all kinds of different things throughout the New Testament, the way, believers. But this is the third time they're called Christians. And the other two times that word is used, they're in the book of Acts, and they're actually in context where unbelievers are using them as a derogatory term. Christians. The word used to mean a lot more and carry more weight than it does today. Now it means if you're faintly aware of the teachings of Jesus and just say you believe and that teaching, whatever that may be, you can classify yourself as a Christian. And one of the components of our mission statement as a church is to make the real Jesus known, right? It's the middle statement in our mission statement. Make the real, we desire to make the real Jesus known. And a part of making the real Jesus known is so that people can be real followers of him. You know, we must seek to follow the Jesus from the Bible, not some caricature of what we think him to be created off of our own desires, what we want him to be like. And as we're making the real Jesus known, we must not be ashamed of him when his true nature and character comes under attack by those around us. And Peter's telling his readers that the only only crime they should suffer for is the crime of being guilty for clinging to the faith. You know, as we're assessing the the root cause of our suffering, as we're looking back to why, why is it that I'm in this fiery trial? You may not be able to find a root cause, but if you do. And we realize that it's truly because we believe in Christ that we are suffering and we find ourselves in those situations. We should not cower in fear and in shame, but cling to the gospel and not be ashamed of being called Christians. You know, may that term used to describe us, begin to recapture its intended meaning in our culture and in our churches and in our lives. Being a Christian means we follow the real Jesus, the true Christ, as presented in the scriptures. May we follow him with complete boldness and devotion. Sixth, to rest in God's purposes for our trials. should rest in God's purposes for our trials. Let me read verses 17 and 18. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter here is alluding to a variety of passages, but primarily Ezekiel 9, 5, and 6 in the Old Testament, or Jeremiah 25, 29 in the Old Testament. Where God is bringing judgment upon the nations, but he starts within his own people. Last week we talked about the end of all things is at hand. It's verse 7 of chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. And how at the end of all things everyone will stand in judgment before God. Believer and unbeliever alike. And Peter's discussed a a variety of times in this letter already, judgment. And he's been building this argument that a portion of the final judgment has already begun. Not with the people who have rejected Christ, that will come. But among those within the very household of God, to use the language here in verse 17. So what kind of judgment is he talking about? What is beginning to take place now in this judgment that he's talking about? Well, one of the purposes of trials for Peter... And this letter has been to test the genuineness of our faith, right? I mean, go back to chapter 1, verse 6, if you want to. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith basically may come out more pure, may be refined as though silver and gold in a furnace, Now think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 13 with the the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Maybe you're familiar with this parable. But a field of wheat is sown by these workers and uh, they represent the people of God, this field of wheat, the people of God. Yet during the night, the enemy sneaks in and he plants a bunch of weeds in the midst of all this wheat. So when the crops grow and bear fruit, the workers see a bunch of weed, weeds, not weed, (laughs) weeds, (laughs) different parable, Um, and wheat uh, growing up together, right? And so the workers, they they go to the master of, of the crops, of the fields, and they say, should we go out and get rid of the weeds? And the master says, no, because you may accidentally pluck up some of the wheat too. So rather, gather up the good wheat and the weeds, and we'll separate it at the harvest, essentially. Final judgment. Basically, leave believer and unbeliever alike in the household of God, the church, and at the final judgment, they'll be divided. Essentially what Jesus is saying. Now, what does that parable have to do with these two verses about trials and judgment? Well, the Lord has already begun sifting believer and unbeliever in the church through trials. For trials often expose wheat from weeds. When the fruit is exposed through fiery trials, it could be persecution, but it could also just simply be trials in this life. One can often clearly see the final separating of believer and unbeliever begin to take place here even within the church. You now, One of the purposes of trials is to refine and purify believers, but also to expose unbelievers, that they may repent and turn to Christ. If you're here this morning and you're walking through trials, what kind of fruit is it producing in you? Is it producing bitterness, anger, resentment, rage, frustration? How do you respond when you're corrected, when you're called out? Or is it producing in you trust, steadfastness, endurance, character, hope? to quote Romans chapter five. Your trials may be God refining you or your trials may be God driving you to repentance and trust in Christ. If you're a believer, rest in God's purposes for your trials. I've said this before, your suffering is not arbitrary. It is not accidental. It's not a random draw of cards. Your suffering has a purpose. And God is using it to refine you in Christ Jesus. Seventh, seventh, entrust yourself to God's sovereign care. Trust yourself to God's sovereign care in the midst of fiery trials. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter 2, 23, preached on this already. I'm gonna read it for us again. It says, when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. Same language. Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we suffer through fiery trials, we place our lives and our care and our future in the hands of our maker. Why? Because our creator has the power and authority to take our unjust suffering and right all the wrongs that we're experiencing. And we oftentimes think we know what's best for us. We have our own plans, we have our own goals, we have our own dreams. Sometimes fiery trials come along and they disrupt our plans and our dreams and our goals. They throw a wrench into the map we've drawn for how things should go in our lives. And Peter's saying here, place your life in the hands of the one who made you. For he has told us, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that I am for you. And if I am for you, who can be against you and trust yourselves to his care For he is your maker and he loves you and then last last eighth response fiery trials continue doing good continue doing good and trust ourselves to our creator who's faithful to us while doing good a lot of times the temptation is in our response when suffering comes along is to abandon what we were doing that caused that suffering. And Peter says here, if you suffer for doing good, the last thing you need to do is cease doing good. Keep doing good. Persevere. And most of us uh, in this room probably know the name Charles Spurgeon. I'm not sure how acquainted you are with his life. But Spurgeon lived mid-1800s, nicknamed the Prince of Preachers. I mean, the guy, I'd encourage you to go back and read some of his sermons. The guy just had such a mastery on language that he could just paint images and pictures with words. that You're just like, my goodness gracious, like, that's beautiful. I don't know how you did that. The Holy Spirit, and you're a genius, but whatever. But God saved him when he was 15 years old, and that's an awesome story for another day we won't go into, but when he was 19 years old, so four years later, he began to pastor his first church. It was literally only months into his preaching that word began getting around about this young guy, this kid who could really bring the word, it's a modern translation, really bring it, and over the course of the next 38 years, thousands would come every single Sunday to hear him preach, thousands of people. I mean, lives were continually being affected by the gospel through his preaching. It wasn't just they were come to be entertained; they were truly being affected by the Holy Spirit. Revivals breaking out all over England. And maybe that's the Spurgeon you know, and, and that Spurgeon. The story of Spurgeon is obviously true. All those things are true. But there's another side to Charles Spurgeon that not many people know. And it's the picture of the suffering of Spurgeon. You now Spurgeon, throughout most of his life, battled significant physical and emotional disabilities. He struggled with gout. He had uh, one of his biggest bouts with depression, almost crippling depression. And the struggle for him was primarily biological in nature. If you go back and assess kind of his life, it's primarily biological. But it wasn't helped by a variety of events in his life that transpired uh, really early on in his ministry days. And one of those events that triggered his depression more than any others occurred when he was 22 years old. While he was preaching to a few thousand people, someone in the crowd who thought it would be funny to pull a prank yelled fire in the middle of this thousand seat church. And as a result of everybody fleeing in the chaos to get out of the building, thinking there was an actual fire when there was not, 35 people were trampled and seven of them died. And the local newspapers, they picked up on the story and they blamed Charles Spurgeon for not having more control over the situation and allowing all those things to happen, allowing these people to die. And at this point in his life, he'd only been married 10 months. He had two newborn twin boys in a house that he had just moved into, and yet the onslaught of depression from that event caused him to consider ever preaching again. His closest friends put him on what we would call today suicide watch after that event. They thought he was gonna take his own life. So catastrophic to him. And this incident would be a cause, and again, using modern terminology, what we would call PTSD, be a cause of PTSD for the remainder of his life. But in the midst of the fiery trials, these fiery trials, I want to read you something that he wrote as a comfort and an exhortation to us when we find ourselves in the midst of our own suffering. Suffering because of Christ or simply suffering from living in this broken world. And he says this, it's gonna be on the screen for you, it's a little lengthy, but I'm gonna read it for you. He said the soul is broken in pieces, lanced, pricked with knives, dissolved, racked, pained. It knows not how to exist when it gives way to fear. Up, Christian, you are of a sorrowful countenance, up and chase your fears. Why would you ever why would you be ever groaning in your dungeon? Why would giant despair forever beat you with his crab tree cudgel? Up, drive him away. And he goes on. But how? If our greatest hope isn't our present healing, but his everlasting love, what do we do? With all his promises, words, counsel, and saving graces, with all of his natural provisions of retreat, laughter, creation, quiet, rest, hot baths, and medicines, with every cavernous longing for redemption of every aching thing, we look at our accuser, and we whisper if we cannot shout, you might be right, but Jesus. You might be right, things are worse than I thought, but Jesus. You might be right, all is lost, but Jesus. You might be right, I'm abandoned, but Jesus. You might be right, I'm forfeit, but Jesus. You might be right, I should stay down, but Jesus. You might be right, it would be too late for me, but Jesus. You might be right, I'm out of reach, but Jesus. You might be right, I'm a sinner, but Jesus. You might be right, they might be better off without me, but Jesus. You might be right, I could deserve to die, but Jesus. But Jesus, He is our only hope, church, of being sustained in the midst of fiery trials. If you find yourself in the throes of suffering and despair, take heart in the one who endured suffering for the sake of his body so that his body at the end of their suffering will partake in his glory. He has secured it for us and therefore it is ours forever and ever. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. Father, your grace is sufficient for us in the midst of our weakness because you desire and deserve the glory for your power in us when we've got nothing left. life is full of trouble but we take heart for Christ has overcome the world fiery trials will come upon every single one of us in this room if we're not in one now you're preparing us because we may be in one tomorrow but you are sovereign oh God and you are good and you love us and there is nothing you allow into our lives that is not intended to refine your people. To refine us, to make us more to the image of Christ so that we can better bear one another's weaknesses for the sake of your glory in this church. You comfort us in our affliction that we may comfort others in their affliction. Comfort us now, O oh God. Comfort us now and give us the strength and the hope to endure as we make our way through this life and anticipate future glory. We love you. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.